Welcome to Law & More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen & Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. This time, our guest, Ali Burney, a Hong Kong-based foreign registered lawyer whose practice areas include the complex world of economic sanctions and export controls. Ali is a partner in Steptoe & Johnson, an international law firm headquartered in Washington. He speaks with our senior partner, Colin Cohen, about the ongoing tensions between the United States and China, the challenges of advising clients in the current political climate, and Hong Kong's enduring importance as a major financial center. Stay tuned. Welcome to Laura Moore. I'm absolutely delighted that you are able to join us today. And what's been keeping you busy this week? Given what I do, China's been keeping us busy, specifically ongoing US-China tensions in the export control and sanction space. So we represent Chinese individuals and companies that have been added to the so-called U.S. entity list, which is an export control list, but also on the sanction side as well. So that keeps us going. And then some of our other clients are involved in Afghanistan, which also has its own sanctions risks. Sounds intriguing. I'll have to come back to that. But just to help our listeners, um, you are a lawyer from the United States of America, um, as I have been informed that you were admitted to practice in the District of Columbia, not to be confused with Washington State, but that swampy area around Washington. And also you are admitted to the New York Bar. I'm interested as to what brought you out to Hong Kong and what got you here? Like many people in Hong Kong, the story is probably not as straightforward or as planned as we would like to imagine. I started out in Washington, D.C. with my legal career with not a U.S. law firm, but actually an English law firm, and stayed with that firm for on and off 15 years and moved to Singapore. Um, that was the Southeast Asia head office. Around 2018, 2019, our group, which was practicing, specializing in practicing U.S. law, but was based in Asia, we decided to join a Washington firm that was opening a Hong Kong office, but had been in Beijing. And so we left our prior firm and joined the new firm and, and opened the Hong Kong office. So that's what brought you to Hong Kong. Seems that you arrived at, at an absolute perfect time. It does seem that we timed it right. I and mean, I would love to say that we could have predicted everything that happened. We didn't, but we did know that given the trajectory of events, the area of law we practice would be in need in this region. And, and we continue to believe that Hong Kong is a regional practice area. So Hong Kong is not just practicing Hong Kong law or China. You can cover the entire region and it is Asia's global city. And we feel strongly about that. So we were going to choose between Singapore and Hong Kong and ultimately Knowing all the facts, we decided to go with Hong Kong, and we're quite happy with that choice. Just to sort of help everyone who's listening, so some people might be confused over what is known as a foreign registered lawyer practicing in Hong Kong. So can you just help us out and explain simply exactly what is meant by that term? What Hong Kong allows foreign practitioners to do, which is a great testament to the openness of this city, is that we can come here and practice our own law. So I can come here and advise Hong Kong clients or regional clients on U.S. law. What I cannot do is practice any Hong Kong law or give any advice on Hong Kong law or, in fact, any of our associates. So it's a very clear and simple delineation, and it, it works for us because there's great practitioners in Hong Kong who can do the Hong Kong part of the work. 
you're being very kind because I think we worked together. On the, that's how I got to know you. We worked together on a few matters, giving advice as to Hong Kong law, which has international dimension. So it is a very useful relationship. And Hong Kong does have not only American lawyers, Italian, German, Chinese as well. Indeed, we have a foreign registered lawyer working with us who is admitted in German law and English law practices. Now, perhaps we've spoken a little bit about what your practice areas, and one of the interesting areas which I read on your CV is you're specialising in economic sanctions and what derives from that. Perhaps you can sort of again tell us exactly what this entails and the type of clients who you would be acting for. So US sanctions are a tool of US foreign policy using legal methods. They apply and basically what they say is you can or cannot do business with a certain country or a person or a company. What makes them interesting is that where many countries have sanctions programs, but they generally apply territorially and apply within known and understood jurisdictional limits. U.S. sanctions apply extraterritorially and go beyond uh, normal jurisdictional limits. The whole point of them being is to stop non-U.S. persons from doing business with U.S. sanctions targets. This brings us to why we are here. So in Asia, many countries, including China and other countries, have relationships with sanctioned countries. And sometimes those trading relationships are fine. And sometimes they get on the other line of U.S. law enforcement. And sometimes, as everybody has heard, with certain public cases, some of which we've worked on, um, the Chinese companies themselves are on the other side. When that is the case, then we step in and we're basically acting as defense counsel for those firms, representing them in front of U.S. agencies. So in essence, to help our listeners, the U.S. imposes sanctions on whoever. And then that particular entity, which is based here in Hong Kong, and it's an American entity, has to be very careful if it does take instructions from that particular entity or that particular state. It goes broader than that. Once that entity is targeted, any transactions involving the U.S. financial system, which includes most dollar transactions, are prohibited. So even if there's two non-U.S. entities, one of which is a sanctions target, and they want to engage in trade with each other, but they decide to pay each other or do the transaction in dollars, that is subject to U.S. jurisdiction and therefore can result in penalties if you do engage in a transaction that way. And this is a very common trap that non-U.S. companies fall uh, and the penalties are heavy. So it's per transaction with maximum penalty can be around $300,000 per transaction or twice the value of the transaction, whichever is greater. Statute of limits is five to 10 years. It can go back and the penalties can run into the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. I also noted from your CV that you advise clients regarding export controls, anti-money laundering. Um, Is there great demand for here in Hong Kong in in respect of American law coming into Hong Kong in respect of those particular clients here? Yeah, so for export controls, a lot of our work is in relation to companies that have already been enlisted by the U.S. government on the export control side. The money laundering side is interesting because the U.S. government, especially the criminal prosecutor, uses money laundering, wire fraud, bank fraud as a tool to enforce sanctions and export controls. And without getting into too much of the details, they don't need to, as long as they can show intent for money laundering for the predicate crime, they don't need to show criminal intent for the predicate crime. So they can 
almost escalate administrative violation into a criminal violation without going through the evidentiary burden of showing willful violations. And they can also use civil asset forfeiture, which is then they just have to show reasonable cause and just grab the assets without actually prosecuting the case on criminal grounds. Well, that's interesting because the Americans or the great US of A, they seem to have their tentacles all over the place. And that brings me to another sort of topic, which always caused me a little bit of not concern. I don't really try to understand it. And many of our listeners probably is this Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is again, legislation in the US, which is another area of your concern. So perhaps you can sort of help us out. Can you give us an overview on how this affects businesses of people operating here in Hong Kong? I think this is one of the most well-known of the U.S. extraterritorial laws. It prohibits corrupt payments to foreign government officials. So, for example, paying a bribe to a Hong Kong government official or a Chinese government official, that would be prohibited. It applies to U.S. companies, but it also applies to what are called U.S. issuers. So non-U.S. companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges are also subject to the FCPA. That covers, as you know, a lot of Hong Kong companies that are dual listed or through various other structures. So they have to comply directly with the FCPA in that regard. And there's all kinds of issues that arise with that with regard to reporting requirements, um, books and records, and then criminal prosecutions on the back of that. I think there's an elephant in this room, and I think I should really try and address this. Can you help us, and can you sort of summarize what's happening between the US and China right now, and why, with that concept in mind, sanctions have become such a hot topic? There are tensions currently between the US and China, and they have manifested themselves in various ways, but putting aside the military part of it, In the economic sphere, there's the trade tensions, which we see played out in the tariffs and other trade-related disputes that have arisen between the U.S. and China. And then there's the sanctions and export controls. The U.S. government has used economic sanctions to target Hong Kong government officials, as well as certain Xinjiang government officials. But although these sanctions are captured the limelight, the real tool that the U.S. government has used and probably the most harmful to Chinese economic interest is the export control regulation, especially the entity list. What that does is when you put a company on the entity list, it restricts their access to any U.S. origin technology. Most specifically, it restricts their access to chips of a certain design, which has really hobbled, in some instances, certain Chinese companies that have been put on the list. And perhaps that's where we see this tension playing out as the U.S. tries to keep its competitive advantage in technology and R&D perhaps one or two steps ahead of China. And China obviously wants to close that gap desperately. These escalating tensions, does that make your job a little bit more onerous, difficult? That's right. On the one hand, it does create more work for us. As more companies are targeted, they look to firms like us and others to help them. But when it's just an agency decision in the U.S., things can be resolved fairly reasonably. But when you add in political heat, so what we've seen in a new dimension is that while we will be talking with the agency to either get our client off the list On the back end, there's a lot of senators and congressmen for their own reasons are creating heat. There's newspaper reports being published that makes it harder for the agency to reach a favorable conclusion because they're also worried how that will be viewed in the public, especially in the the U.S. public's opinion right at this stage. 
And this sort of brings me to an obvious question. You've got this conflict between the two superpowers. How do you stay strictly in the middle without offending one side or the other? In some sense, being a law firm is easier than, say, being a lobbying firm or a consulting firm because we're really just sticking to the legal aspects of it. All of the legislation that's used to target Chinese companies, that legislation also has appeals processes and other due process control. So we don't see it as necessarily acting against the interests of the U.S. by representing our clients and using those legislative and regulatory tools that are provided in the system. The due process is what makes our system something that's recognized and hopefully still appreciated. That's interesting because the clients you're representing, you have to appear in front of the U.S. Department of Justice, the Treasury, the Commerce Bureau. These are well-known, challenging bureaus. And from a compliance standpoint, it's going to be not that easy for you. How do you deal with that personally? Do you you worry? Don't have sleepless nights too much these days. Whenever you're representing clients, you have to be very open with them as to how the process works when you're representing in front of U.S. agencies. It's not a traditional criminal defense process where you hold back all information until they have something. In a lot of cases, it involves information sharing to be able to get off the target list. And the clients have to be on board with that. But it's a difficult balancing act. And sometimes the agencies are willing to cooperate and sometimes they they want to come down hard. And we don't know all of the things that are going on behind the scenes, even within the agency, as to why something will happen. It could be because certain prosecutor thinks this is their case and they want to make a mark, or it could be some other political issue driving. I'm interested in this. I mean, the scenery, the political arena Every four years, it seems to change from the Republicans to the Democrats, and we now have the Democrats now in power, and yet we had an election for the governor of Virginia has now turned Republican. Does this have an impact upon whoever is in power, making it more difficult for you to deal with the various agencies and represent your clients? It used to be the case that U.S. foreign policy, including sanctions policy, was fairly stable because even though at the top of each of the agencies would be a political appointee, there was a certain amount of continuity. The last administration added some wild cards and some uncertainty to the practice, and there were some dramatic changes. For example, revocation or pulling out of the JCPOA, which was the pact with Iran unilaterally, or escalating sanctions against China also unilaterally. So that was a little hiccup, but there's still some political appointees that need to be put through. So the hope is that it will return to the old ways, which was the bureaucracy and the people that were steering the bureaucratic ships would remain generally the same. But obviously, that's not guaranteed. Let's move to a personal level. I'm always interested. What made you become a lawyer? Because I wouldn't be good at trading stocks. My grandfather was a criminal defense lawyer in what was then British India. And then he moved to Pakistan. And I grew up in his old chambers next to the city courts in Karachi. Maybe I didn't know anything more than that, but that's what I grew up around and I liked it. And so I continued. I wanted to be an American lawyer. But when my grandfather found out that I wasn't going to be a doctor, he said, well, if you're going to be a lawyer, you better get an English degree so you can properly practice law. So I took a little diversion and actually qualified as a barrister from Lincoln's Inn in the UK, and then went back to finish my US degree. And 
just backtracking a little bit, you spent, I understand, part of your childhood in rural Tennessee and went to university of it. Any memories of that or did you gain anything from that experience? I mean, I think it was great. I think I gained such a window into America that when I see other folks that have grown up in the big U.S. cities and they have a view, but growing up in Tennessee, you saw what motivated people. I was treated very well. People were very welcoming. I don't have any bad memories of Tennessee, but they had different concerns. They have a different view on life than if you live in Washington or New York or Boston or L.A. And I think what it taught me is that you can change people's views, but you have to speak to them in a language that they themselves understand, which is what Bill Clinton did very well. And of course, Tennessee's and the country music, the Blue Mountains yeah. and all that area. I mean, it must have been a great experience being there. I mean, musically, it's such a diverse place. It is diverse in its own way. We don't think about it, but great depths apart from what you would think of Tennessee. There's Cherokee culture, there's African-American culture, even within the European settlers. There's a big portion of that is what we would call Scots-Irish folk, which are fascinating combination themselves and how they got there. So it's a very interesting place. And that music that you see coming from Tennessee, it doesn't sprout up out of nowhere. It comes from this melting pot and crossways of different cultures that creates it. Just sort of backtracking a little bit, you did a master's in banking and finance law. And what got you to move into this sort of unique speciality of sanctions, etc.? Well, when I first joined the firm, well, I was hired in July 2001. And I was going to start on September 17th, 2001 in Washington, D.C. It was clear for chance I was going to do some kind of banking work, which is great. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And I land September 10th in Washington, opposite the Pentagon, and I don't have a TV. And in the morning, I get a call from my sister. And obviously, September 11th happens and the whole world has changed. Along with that, the dot-com bubble also finishes and They say, well, we've got a case ongoing, which has got some interesting sanctions and national security matters. Do you want to help with that as a junior associate? And that's how my practice started. Maybe serendipity is the right word. And what prompted you just to end up taking up that position in Singapore? Well, I think it was probably for a little bit of professional reasons. If you're sitting in Washington, there's a lot of great lawyers in Washington. You can keep on advising clients from a safe distance at your desk. But we saw that the need was here. And I personally, especially when you're giving some harsh news or defending somebody, there's a value in being close to your clients. I think especially as a U.S. lawyer, going to a Chinese company saying you have to comply with U.S. law, that's a tough message to sell. And you can only really do it if they trust you. And you can't do it unless you're there and you actually meet them. Well, you've been in Hong Kong for well over a year. Your family are here with you. Are you enjoying life here? Absolutely. I mean, I think for us, Hong Kong changes every moment. Now, the caveat is we have a three-year-old daughter, so we don't travel as much as more mobile folks like yourself. But when we do, it's it's an ever-changing city. I like where we live. You can see the mountains, but I also like crossing the water, going into TST, Kowloon. Every time, every different place is kind of a new vision. At one point, I can be standing and, and feel that I'm in Hilltown, and then I can feel that I'm in London. Or if I go across, it could be like a fishing village in Thailand. It, it all changes. Let me be a little bit controversial. Quick fire. Singapore or Hong Kong? I've well, got you there. I've got me there. <laughs> Each has its own. Let me be a lawyer in, in, in the response. Each has its own 
time. I think Singapore and Southeast Asia is wonderful. It's such a diverse place. But I think weather-wise and living-wise, we're really enjoying Hong Kong more. For our listeners, I must say I had a most wonderful occasion with you when I invited you along to watch the Super Bowl. Well, I invited you along. Being American, I thought you could explain everything to me. And you did okay in respect of all of this. What other sports are you into? Do you miss your US sport whilst you're over here? Well, I, I do miss football and college football, especially watching it with folks. I wouldn't say I'm into new sports, but I'll raise a controversial topic. I do every now and then follow some cricket. Really? Yes, of course. That's your deep, deep roots. That's right. That's right. We've got the 2020 World Cup on at the moment, and your team is doing quite well. It could be a Pakistan-England final. They love to break my heart, so we'll see about that. You're a registered foreign lawyer here. Any thoughts about trying to defeat the examiners and becoming locally qualified through the overseas lawyers qualifying exam? Have you given that some thought or you're not going down that slippery talk about, slope? Talk about sleepless nights. Let me give you a non-answer. The way we're structured is that we are a foreign law firm and unless we change that status, even if I was a Hong Kong qualified lawyer, I wouldn't be able to practice Hong Kong law because of the status of my firm. If in the future we decide to change, certainly the type of interesting cases that you do make me want to practice Hong Kong law. That's good. Of course, COVID has impacted upon everyone on our travel around the region. If you are able to get on that plane right away, where would you go to? Apart from going back home. Apart from going back home. Gosh, I'd probably go to Perth. Right, Australia. (laughs) I like Australia. (laughs) That's That's an interesting one. Let's look for the future. I mean, we've got... The ongoing tensions, which we spoke about before between the US and China, they're a source of concern. How do you see this playing out in the long game? So it's very easy to escalate tensions of what we've seen. And it's very hard to de-escalate because when two big powers face off against each other, to de-escalate, there has to be a coordinated dance of who does what first. And so there's no loss of face. I think both sides, especially in regard to Hong Kong, appears to have decided that the escalation has gone far enough. So we have some kind of detente. So on the U.S. side, we haven't seen any more designations. And on the U.S. side, we haven't seen any more reports to Congress that could cause there to be further escalation. Obviously, on the side here, we've seen some very careful worded statements on the when and how the anti-foreign sanctions law will be implemented. So I think there's a realization that while there are ongoing tensions between China and the U.S., Hong Kong is a special place where the two countries and systems can interact. And they shouldn't mess around with that, this small part of the, the world too much just because of the broader issues. Right. And finally, do you have any thoughts on Hong Kong's future, how it might develop and continue its status as a global financial center? Your views? Well, I mean, in the next five years, I think it will continue to grow, obviously, China will be the bigger driver of the financial growth for the financial markets in Hong Kong. But I still see my vision is that the Belt and Road stuff will cause arbitration, Hong Kong to remain a leading arbitration center. I think a lot of countries that do have Belt and Road projects will continue to want to use a Hong Kong-based legal system to arbitrate with Chinese companies. In, In most respects, it's still an easier place to set up and do business than other countries in the region. I know Singapore has made great strides, but still Hong Kong has a lot of advantages. Ali, it's been a great pleasure having you on Laura Moore and listening to your fascinating insights. 
thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me here. You've been listening to Law & More, brought to you by Bose Cohen & Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news, and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com, or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on our next episode.